Hello, friends, and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. I'm your host today, Kristen Carey, and I am excited to hear from Carol Jurgensen Sheets today. We recorded this before the entire world was turned upside down by the COVID-19 crisis, and yet we went ahead and decided to release this in the midst of that crisis anyways. Part of what many of us are having to explore as we adjust to a new normal of being with each other 24-7 in our families is how to build a better marriage, how to build a better family, how to have empathy for one another. Carol specifically has an expertise in helping people who have broken their marriage vows, whether through a sex addiction or pornography use, uh, infidelity, she helps them develop empathy for their partner in order to help them heal. And empathy is something that gets really shut down when we feel threatened. And never in my lifetime have I lived in such a threatening world. We have so much fear that we're living through in this time. And so as a result, our natural ability to have empathy for one another decreases. And I think that empathy is something that can increase our love for one another and our families. It can help us move through this really difficult time. I really hope that listening to this podcast is going to help you to be able to heal your connection with your partner and with your children. So without further ado, here's our episode today. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Carey, and I am so thankful to have Carol Jurgensen Sheets here with me today, otherwise known as Carol the Coach. Carol is an amazing therapist in the Indianapolis area. She's also a life coach. Carol is a certified sex addiction therapist, and she is certified by the Association of Partner of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists otherwise known as APSATS. Carol's also on the board of APSATS and does EMDR, which I love. I love to send people to get EMDR done for trauma work. So Carol has so many incredible aspects of her practice. I especially appreciate her expertise in working both with partners and with sexual addicts, with families and marriages that have been impacted by sexual betrayal. Carol, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure being here. And I love that you're starting this podcast. This is so needed. Yeah, we have a lot of listeners I think are going to really benefit from hearing you talk today. I am especially excited to talk to you about your new book, Help Her Heal. Oh, thank you. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to write this book. Well, it's interesting because I started um, working with sex addicts about 14 years ago. And when they followed the uh, program that I advocated for, they got better. And although we can see sex addicts that are motivated to change and sex addicts that aren't, one of the things I noticed is that most of the men that came into my office, they really wanted to do better. They really wanted to end this horrible um, disorder, if you will. And they got better. And then I'd bring in their wives and their wives were so betrayed and they were so devastated. And I say, although this this is not necessarily true, but that they were in the fetal position on the floor and they were so affected. 
And I didn't know what to do with them. And that's when I got my APSATS training, which greatly improved their functioning so that I began to work on those basic skills that the husband and the wife need to heal. But what I realized was that he didn't know how to develop those relational skills. He didn't know how to practice them. And so he would spin his wheels just kind of working off the cuff, or I would encourage him and I'd tell him what to do, and he couldn't retain it for a variety of reasons. And so that's when I said, you know what, I'm going to create a workbook that helps sex addicts to develop empathy skills to help their partner heal. And that's how it came to be. I love it. I love it. Um, And so have you seen a big difference in the marriages that you've worked with as you've been working on the skill of empathy with the addict? Well, you know, not only have I seen a big difference, but because I too have a couple of podcasts that are international, I'm getting a lot of feedback all over the world from people that are saying, you know, we've been working on this stuff for two, three, four, five years, and nothing has really helped until he started reading your book. And of course, partners always do the work. So even though they don't have to read the book, they want to read the book to know what he's reading. And now I'm actually prescribing it. Once he's done his work, I prescribe that they read it together and work on those exercises. Because again, the premise of the book is twofold. One is for him to put himself in her shoes to really understand the devastation. And the second part is to learn the skills that he can use to convey that he's sorry, that he gets it, that he sees her pain, and most importantly, Kristen, that he knows he caused her pain. Even as he's changing, he's always to remind her, I know you're feeling this way today because I caused this pain. And there's something miraculous that happens when she hears him reinforce that he's at fault for her pain. It's like that ownership for the partner, seeing uh, the, the, the person who did the betrayal take ownership of what they've caused is, it is, it's magical. And it's so interesting because it's, it's very counterintuitive and, and against normal human nature. I mean, normally when we feel like we did something wrong or we, we have shame, we want to hide, we want to put our head in the sand or be defensive and run away out of fear and out of shame. But, but it's the opposite that brings healing to the coupleship and to the partner, especially. Don't you think partners heal a lot more quickly when they get empathy from their spouse? 100%. And you're spot on when you say it's counterintuitive because the addicts do have so much shame at what they did that they not only want to run from it, but they also don't want to bring it up because they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to trigger her worse. She's going to think back to that entire history of betrayal and she's going to be more activated when in reality, it brings down her activation and it reassures her that he really is on the right path. You called it ownership. That's absolutely a 
beautiful word for it. I call it accountability. He's holding himself accountable for his actions, which then moves them forward. And this book um, really believes that when he can help her to heal, um, she gets better faster, and then that raises his self-esteem. So it's a win-win for both of them. It's a win-win for both of them and then for the marriage. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing, Carol. It's so amazing. So why do you think it's so difficult besides the, we, we did talk about the shame, but why else do you think it's so difficult for spouses with problematic sexual behavior to demonstrate empathy? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I really don't know. Here's my premise. And then, and I tell them that, and then they help me to figure it out because for every couple, it's different. I always say, you know, I don't know if you lacked the skills to begin with, which made compulsive, problematic sexual behavior easier to get into. And then, of course, we all know that those kind of behaviors rob a person from their empathy. And so it's what I call an auto-exacerbating situation. It's like a circle. It goes round and round and round and round. So that may be one premise that he didn't have much to begin with, and then the disorder robbed him of that. Yeah. But the other thing is that sometimes wives say he used to be empathetic. And for those couples, I suspect that he had it, but he had to lose it to maintain those sexually addictive behaviors. And when you do that over and over and over again for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you can't have empathy and keep doing what you're doing because you'd feel horrible about yourself in regards to the relationship. So they just kind of close that compartment down and then um, go on with, with their sexually addictive behaviors until discovery in some cases, very few cases, but still some cases, a man can just get so fed up with himself that he does confess without the discovery part. Right. You know, Carol, we had a panel a couple of weeks ago where women who've been through betrayal answered the questions of the men in Men in the Battle. So men with problematic sexual behavior, either sex addiction or infidelity, et cetera. And one of the wives came to me and said afterwards that her husband came home that night after hearing us talk on the panel with empathy for the addict. And he came home and said, oh my goodness, I for the first time feel like I am not a monster. And so I also wonder like how much like self-contempt and self-hatred these men build up for themselves, especially once that compartmentalization is over and they're face-to-face with what they've done mm-hmm. and how much um, just that self-hatred may perpetuate the cycle of addiction and or their inability to show empathy for their wives because they feel almost like less than human. Oh, there's so much self-loathing that then contributes to that sexually addictive pattern um, because they, of course, want to numb out because they hate themselves. And that, too, creates that sexual addiction cycle. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what I feel is so um, inspiring that 
that suffering, that self-loathing, that um, feeling of I'm a despicable person, when combined with a provider, a pastor, a group uh, that understands and cares and explains, that obviously brings that down. And when that happens, for the first time, they feel relief linked with their old behaviors. And there's some hope that they change and be the person that they really want to be. And Patrick Karn says it beautifully when he says, you know, and this is biblical, and this is actually every philosophy ever known to man, that when there is that terrible, terrible suffering, it can create transformation, which then enables um, giving back and a legacy. And really, as you and I both know, because we're coaches, when they really get a good sense of, yes, this is what I did, and these are the behaviors I'm using to change it, and this is who I am today, then they want to help other people and they do leave a legacy and they actualize their potential and that then strengthens their relationship with God. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. That post-traumatic growth is what makes this job of working with partners and addicts and families so fulfilling, right? Right. Oh. 100%. And so... I just want to segue that, unfortunately, for our listeners out there, whether you're the addict or the partner, um, oftentimes we get so stuck in not talking to the partner about her amazing resilience, her amazing mm -hmm. strength, things that may have come out of this horrendous ordeal that actually... I, I hate to say it, but they're character builders and they lead to post-traumatic growth. You know, I'd love to go back to a couple more questions about your Help Her Heal book on empathy, if you don't mind. Why, why do you think partners are so afraid to trust empathy? Like if their spouse starts to practice it, why are they so afraid to trust it? Well, because understandably, their husbands and, you know, wives too, but we're just using the... Sure. Their husbands have been so good at deceit. And, and I always say, unlike alcoholism, unlike drug addiction, sexual addiction, problematic compulsive sexual behavior, they didn't know anything about it. They were completely duped. And that is what's so scary is because not only did, did they not know about it, but when they found out about it, they wondered why they didn't know about it. And I let wow. them know that their husbands were masters of deceit and they did a great job of keeping it from her. But now that she does know, she will be able to spot it more readily, you know, Women have great intuition. That's why they're great mothers. And now that they know their husband has a problem, they will see things a lot more clearly. But when they see empathy, they go, okay, is this just a way to keep me off the track? He didn't have empathy before. How could he have empathy now? Now, the truth of the matter, 
they go back and forth on that. They'll come into my office and they'll say, oh my gosh, this is like magic. I was so furious with him. He was 45 minutes late. He initially came in and he wanted to ignore that. And then I just let him have it. And I told him how upset I was and he immediately AVR'd me. And AVR is a formula in the workbook where he acknowledges what is upsetting her. He acknowledges the issue. And then he validates the primary feeling that she's experiencing. And it's usually one of the five that I, I talk about in the book, anger, sadness, loneliness, fear, or happiness. And then he reassures her. And that reassurance may look like, um, you know, I want you to know I'm really working on this. It was a total lapse of judgment on my part. And I will start screenshotting every day when I leave work so that you can at least see the time that I'm leaving and you'll have more information. You know, it's whatever he can do to keep her safe. So again, that formula of acknowledging the issue, validating the feeling and reassuring her will hopefully help her to see that at least he has a program he's working. Now, if she doesn't believe it or if he doesn't continue to maintain the good skills he needs to keep her safe, he's dead in the water. Because the truth of the matter is he has to walk his talk. Mm -hmm. He just does. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So this formula of AVR is so easy to remember and it's so great. But again, it is a it is a tool. And if his attitude doesn't line up with using this tool, if he's not actually doing his recovery behaviors and actually having empathy in his heart, which is something that is they have to work to develop that. I mean, because women can tell when a man is just jumping through the hoops, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you that, that this stuff is initially very difficult for a man. So I ask for the women to have 15 to 20% grace and to say, wow. you know what? You're going to watch him stumble over the formula. He's not going to do it right. You're going to want to, put him down for it, but will you give him a little bit of grace? Because in addiction programs across the board, there's this thing called fake it till you make it. Really means act as if you can do this. Act as if you know how to use this formula. Use it every time that you can possibly use it so that it becomes more and more and more normal. And then he won't have to follow the script. He'll be able to reassure her in different ways, acknowledge her pain in different ways, and of course, validate those feelings. Oh my gosh, she felt, she felt all of them. She was angry. She was sad. She felt lonely. She felt anxious. And I go, pick the primary one. Now, the truth of the matter is, it really doesn't matter which one he picks. I want him to realize that she feels all four of those feelings. Mm -hmm. I to pick just one so that he can review all four of them over and over and over again. But um, I just want him to be able to walk in her shoes and see that even though he was, I said, 45 minutes late, this can happen when he's five minutes late. 
even though he could easily say to himself, I was just five minutes late. He needs to be reminded that that was a time he acted out. Yeah. And, and if he uses that first step, I want to acknowledge, I know I acted out at work. And so because I was a minute late, your mind started going to that dark place of what if he's acting out again? I want him yeah. to think about that. Mm. So what, what are some of the tools and tips you have for sex addicts who want to get better with their relational skills? So I love the idea of repetition, just doing these things over and over again, that builds their relational skills. Mm -hmm. But do you have some other tools and tips that our listeners could benefit from? Well, absolutely. Um, and that your addicts can really benefit from, I, you know, whenever I look at a situation, I look at the addict. I look at the partner and I look at the coupleship and I'm a big proponent of therapists can't do couples therapy right after a discovery. Her, her mind is offline and she can't think she's emotionally flooded. So she needs her own therapy. And um, so I like things to be done in stages, but, when he's got good recovery, and I say, and you're going to laugh at this because good recovery really means long-term recovery, but I say at least 90 days. When he's doing 90 days of recovery, and if she wants it, only if she wants it, but if she wants a disclosure, that they move right into disclosure. And for any of your listeners that don't know, a disclosure is... A therapeutic disclosure is when a therapist who understands this process helps the couple go through the painful facts of what happened in their entire marriage, whether that be a year or 31 years. And when she knows the truth, it helps put her brain back online, and it also helps her to make some decisions. You know, what do I need to do here? Do I need to get a divorce? I have very few disclosures that ever end in divorce. I've had two um, out of my hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of disclosures. Um, and it also helps her to now know what she needs to know to decide what else does she need to do to keep herself safe. And maybe that's, you know, I'm not punishing you for what you told me, but I really don't want to be in the bedroom with you right now. Or, you know, I really, now that I know you acted out with 32 coworkers, I really want you to get a different job. So the disclosure is a great skill building tool because it helps her to know what direction to turn. And then and through the book, I talk about, um, connection shares, which are similar to Thanos's and other check-in processes, but if they're a little bit more positive, I make my couples look at one thing they appreciate about the other person's self or their recovery, even when they're both devastated. I really believe what appreciate appreciates, and if we only look at the negative, that'll only get worse. So I want them to begin to interject either, yeah, I really like the fact that you were on time every day this week, 
or I really like the fact that you were reading with Joey. You never used to do that. Or I really like the fact that you brought your computer into the kitchen and that's where you operate. And he would say, I really like the fact that you smiled at me today when I told you how pretty the flowers are outside. Or really like the fact that your tone was softer with me today and and I know why you're angry and I totally accept that. But when when you're softer with me, it gives me a little hope. So the connection share is a tool that I talk about in the book. I also talk about reflective listening. And you know, there's two real types of therapeutic listening. One is mirroring and one is reflective listening. And I teach my couples from the get-go, and they do it in early couples recovery work, that I want them facing each other, absolutely facing each other. When people are allowed to sit on the couch, they don't look at each other and they multitask. So I want them looking at each other and I want them touching each other knees to knees. That's usually a safe way for a partner to be be touched. And some partners don't want to be touched at all. So Mm -hmm. I say, this is part of my um, recommendations. And if you don't like knees to knees, you got to figure out another way to touch. And then I ask them to look at the left eye, the window to the soul, because I find that for empathy's sake, for both of them, if they really look at that left eye, um, it keeps them focused on what they're seeing on each other's faces. And that's when I see more men cry and more men want to hang their heads. And then I say, left eye. And it just really helps on an emotional basis to connect with whatever that person is saying. Now, it's absolutely okay if the partner is in the back of her head going, I don't know that I believe you here. I don't know if I believe you. But I promise if she's looking at his face in the left window, of uh, the left eye, the window to the soul, he will notice that she's shaking her head. And then he's encouraged to say, honey, I, I can see that I'm telling you something and you're shaking your head. Can you share more about that? And that's when she'll say, I don't believe you here. I can't help it. I don't believe you. And he can then say, what is it that you need from me to help you to begin to believe? Mm, That's beautiful. It really, really, really works, Kristen. I promise you. So I say you got to find a place in your house where you can sit down to talk. And it doesn't mean, you know, one person's in the recliner and one person's on the couch. If you have to buy two folding chairs and keep them up against the wall, that's what I want. How often do you recommend couples do that? All the time. Absolutely. Um, Like once a day for a busy family with young children, like right after kids go to bed every evening or as often as they possibly can? Well, absolutely as often as they possibly can, but at least every other night. Yeah, you know, and and you know, part of my connection share is a struggle, and certainly I see partners. Um, I use the absets approach. I believe the partners go through three phases. The first phase being, 
I just need to feel safe. I need to get stable. And the second phase is where there's a lot of grieving and a lot of mourning. And that's where your groups, Women of the Battle, are just so amazing because they get psychoeducation and they get to talk with each other. And there is crosstalk and they can cry and, and emote and do everything they need to do in a safe place to work on that grief and mourning. And then that last stage is restoration of self, perhaps the coupleship, and um, that's that post-traumatic growth piece. So I really believe the more couples talk to each other, the better they'll be able to do a relational skill that all couples need, and that's compromise and negotiate. And when when any couple, whether they've had betrayal or not, can compromise and negotiate, there's more of a team team teamwork feeling. And that's what we want to get them to do again is to to feel like they're part of the team. They're part mm-hmm. of the coupleship. That's so beautiful. So when you do this work with couples, how long do you think it takes to really see progress and actual trust being rebuilt when they're following all these suggestions? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And of course, it depends on activation by the partner. Um, not so much the history of the sex addict, because believe it or not, I have seen women do great with their husband who visited over a a hundred prostitutes and massage parlors and those things that you would think nobody could ever get over. Um, And then I've seen women who were totally traumatized by pornography. and, And because pornography is so available and accessible, um, there's more reason for them to think, you know, you've got porn in your pocket right now. How can I possibly believe you're not accessing that? So to answer your question, it takes um, somebody with compulsive problematic sexual behavior three to five years to get 100% healthy with not only their recovery, which they've got to work on, but their relational recovery. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe they have to do that simultaneously. Now, typically, somebody who's a sex addict needs that in first 90 days to really focus on their clean time and all the tools and practicing all that stuff. But after that and the disclosure, again, if the partner wants it, from that point forward, they see dramatic changes in year one. They sustain those changes through year two. And by year three, they're rocking it. They're really working it. It's working for them. And three to five is when the triggers are less intense and frequent. He's not so triggered by her triggers. See, there's this whole, he gets triggered by her triggers and it starts a cycle going again, not of sex addiction, but of shame and guilt. Yes. My belief is the same for partners, that it takes at least a year for them to find safety. It takes one to two years to really grieve what they had, what they thought they had, what Mm -hmm. they want what they are afraid they will never have and their new normal, because we all know there's never another normal again. It's a new normal. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that last 
three to five years is when they are redeveloping and designing their lives and figuring out how can I give back? What do I need to do? You know, the beautiful thing about APSATs is that almost all APSATs clinicians and coaches are partners. This is how they are giving back. I'm one of the few that I'm not a partner myself. I thankfully never had to experience that in person. Um, but I'm just always amazed at what women can do once they restore their sense of self. And, you know, they put together incredible programs and um, specialized niches. I, I just had somebody on my podcast yesterday that talked about, you know, she's got support groups specifically for the separated and divorced. Mm -hmm. So, it's it's a it's a great thing to watch, and by year five, they both should be really practicing their new normal and loving themselves again. Mm. I love it. And at what point typically do you see uh, the partner start to feel like she can trust her husband again? In in that whole three to five year process, I know it varies, but if he's if he's working really solid recovery, he's showing her empathy. And he's kind of your dream client, you know, where he's doing everything you ask him to do with his whole heart and he's doing the repair work and all of that. How long does it typically take after a disclosure, say, for a wife to, who's, who's also working a good recovery program for herself Yeah, to really trust him? Yeah, my experience is that after year one, year one after the disclosure, um, that she should feel safe again. And when, when she feels safe, then she can do all that other work. Um, so year one. Now, yeah. some women take two years. Believe it or not, I've seen some women that only require three to six months after the disclosure to, to begin to really trust their reality. And you yeah. both know it's not just trusting him. It's trusting herself that she can see the signs, that she can know whether she's safe and obviously trust her husband. Yeah. So I have one more question before we wrap up, Carol, and that is what, what would you tell partners to do to make the process easier for themselves and for their spouses when, when say, the, the addict lacks these relational skills for empathy? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, what I believe to be true is if she is not getting the relief or the responses that she really needs, then she needs to create safer environments in her other areas of life, have a, a strong um, spiritual support system get herself into a healthy partners group, you know, not one that's talking about trauma and, and relapse, but one where there is post-traumatic growth. She may have to, one of my, one of my partners on my post-traumatic growth uh, course said, I had, I had to take up dancing and it started with salsa dancing, and then I found ballroom dancing, and I loved it, and it renewed me. And we all know that exercise provides dopamine, and dopamine will help her feel happy again. 
you know, Kristen, I work with clients. I used to work with clients and I wanted them in and out of my office in 12 sessions or less. That was called Ericksonian. That was brief strategic therapies. And my clients got better on 12 sessions or less. And now I'm in a field where I'm seeing people weekly. They'd love to have two-hour sessions. They'd love to be with me two times a week. They're so traumatized. There's post-traumatic stress that can occur. There may be complex post-traumatic stress. So working with this kind of population, I am, when somebody's working a healthy recovery program, whether her husband is or not, I'm saying, you know what? You've got to interject more fun in your life. We yeah. need to help you stop reading all of those doggone books, including my own. And <laughs> have you get Happiness for No Reason by Marcy Shimrop? Or have you read Chicken Soup for the Soul? Or have you read a happy novel? You know, uh, Gretchen Rubin does the Happiness Podcast. And I want you to think about how can I find happiness in my life regardless of my husband's recovery? And that's true post-traumatic growth. I love it. I have just been talking about now that the weather's going to get warmer here in Indiana, like walk around barefoot in the grass, like watch the sunset, smell the flowers. Like it can be really simple little things where we unplug from technology and just like get into nature or, or listen to a song or look at a piece of art. There's so many ways to build joy. And we all have to do that throughout our recovery in order to have enough strength to deal with the pain. So I love that, Carol. Carol, I want to thank you so much for being our guest on our podcast today. I think our listeners are going to benefit so much from everything that you had to say. And I recommend that they get your book, Help Her Heal. It's available on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And um, we will list your websites and everything in our description, our podcast description. So I can't thank you enough, Carol, for spending this time with us today. Well, you know how much I admire you and the work you and Michael are doing. And I've watched people transform exponentially because of that. So good luck with this podcast and keep me posted on your other projects. 